I'm Naomi Kilberth, Christian clinical herbalist, owner of Laurel Tree Wellness, and host of the Family Herbalism Podcast. Here on the show, I bring to you loads of helpful information and practical tips to help you on your natural health journey. We cover common and unique symptom pictures, underlying tissue states and the stories that lead to them, and so many tools that promote and restore wellness, not the least of which is plants. Thank you for joining us today. May you be blessed by the conversation and leave with hope and inspiration. Are you ready? Let's begin. Hello, friends, and happy baby month. I'm your host, Naomi Kilbreth. May 2nd is National Baby Day here in the United States, and my mentee Dana Hutchins and I are hosting a series of podcast episodes this month in honor of babies and their families. Each Monday, you're going to find an episode on the Family Herbalism Podcast where we will share our personal experiences and useful herbal remedies for this season of life. There will also be two bonus episodes that will pop up during the month, featuring interviews with two very special guests. So stay tuned, and thank you for listening. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Sam Adler. Dr. Adler is a pediatrician with over 20 years' experience in pediatric and adolescent medical care, and he's currently practicing at his independent clinic in Norway, Maine, Aardvark Pediatrics, seeing patients from birth until early adulthood. As you'll find by listening to our conversation, Dr. Adler's approach in supporting parents is unique. And while we are starting to see more medical care providers offering this style of family-centered care, I know you will appreciate the refreshing perspective he offers us today on the topic of newborn and early childhood health. I can personally vouch for his respectful and compassionate approach as I have been taking my own children to him for several years, and I'm so grateful and excited that he can encourage you here today on the podcast. May you be blessed as you follow along. Welcome to the Family Herbalism Podcast. I am joined here today with Dr. Sam Adler, and I am really excited about this conversation that we're going to have together because as Dr. Adler knows, this month we've been focusing on the podcast all about the childbearing year and infancy and early parenting. And so that is right up his alley. So welcome, Dr. Adler. To the show. I appreciate you being here. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I know that your mission for Aardvark Pediatrics, where where you work and the, the operation that you run, that you have a holistic perspective in how you work with parents and families. Could you tell me a little bit about your perspective on holistic pediatric care? How does that change pediatric care from maybe the average care that parents expect? And what does that look like for your approach? I always have to look up the definition of holistic when I talk about it, because I think it's it's used so frequently now in different venues. I think our office in general is considered, or my approach is considered holistic and how we approach the families, the kids, um, the caregivers, it might be a mom or a dad or a grandparent or an uncle or a foster care parent. But I think it's the approach that we, that we use to the family and to the child as a unit creates, gives us a more holistic approach than maybe a conventional pediatric or uh, healthcare office does. And I think as part, so in, in the definition of holistic care, 
uh, not just the body, but maybe the mind, the soul, religion, and then even getting into family members as vital parts of the whole care. And I, I, I guess our, I guess naturally our approach probably falls more into the holistic spectrum than into conventional uh, medical or healthcare. And I, as far as having a mission, I think our mission is to not be conventional. So we, we don't have a rabbit in our office anymore, but we used to. Um, we have plenty of kid-friendly things up in the office. I think the approach trying as hard as we can to not pack in too many people into the day so that if we need to sit for an hour and talk, that that's there and we're not feeling rushed to move uh, into another patient visit as quickly as possible. So it's patient and family-centered. So the idea is that people don't feel like they're on a conveyor belt and they're stepping off and it's their 15 minute time and then they get back on the conveyor belt. That's, I think that's what we're trying to do anyway. I can certainly vouch for that as a family that comes to see you a couple of times a year with our four children. We always feel very welcomed in your office and never feel rushed. And I can certainly see how Compared to maybe the average pediatric office, when we come to see you, we feel that the whole family is, or the, the child is seen in view of the whole family. The child is part of a family unit and is influenced, their health is influenced uh, by how the whole family is doing. And so you'll ask, you know, how I'm feeling or if I have any concerns. And so you kind of incorporate everybody and you will ask lots of questions that might not be specific to the child's physical well-being, but certainly influence their physical well-being, such as, you know, how they're doing emotionally and, you know, what interests that they have and what projects they're working on and things. You really care about the person as a whole being, and that's very evident. So not everybody lives in our nick of the woods. What kind of advice would you give to parents who are looking for a pediatrician? What Things should they be aware of? How do they find someone like that? From doing this for a while, I was I was counting back to how long I've been doing pediatrics, and it's it's over twenty years now. And I think just being in my early fifties now, you know, just looking back, um, I, I think you know having perspectives on, on how people find a pediatrician or just any or uh, you know somebody to help care for themselves or their children. And that doesn't need to be a pediatrician. That, that can be a mid-level provider. It could, there's, you know, there's multiple people, and that would include people who do, um, you know, naturopathic medicine and other types of alternative or complementary, you know, complementary medicine. But um, I think people tend to migrate towards the type of healthcare that they're looking for. Hopefully, ideally. So, but I think families, if they're, if they're going to have a new baby, definitely trying to go to the office and meet the person. And really, if, if you can, if they can sit down and have 10, 20, 30 minutes with the provider, I think that can really give them an idea of the type of person in the office that they have and go, go prepared with questions. I think uh, an office that might be really helpful for that person should be okay taking the time to really sit down and answer open-ended questions from the family, no matter what that is. So I think that's really important. I think other families finding us, I think 
have um, have found offices similar to ours through word of mouth. Maybe they've had a home birth, and that's pulled them into that niche of um, of people. And then through that, they were recommended to our office. So there can be multiple ways. But I think the most direct way, getting a hold of the office, and if they find that they can't have 10 or 15 minutes to meet with the provider, then that might even give them some insight into you know, the provider and the type of office. Oh, and that with that being said too, Naomi, I think we're, you know, I think in more holistic care, I think we're still the odd duck of an office. I think just asking lots of questions uh, from people you know to hone in and find the particular type of office that you're looking for. That's great. Let's say that a person has come to see you. They Maybe they had an interview and uh, it seems like you're a good match for each other. And then they bring their baby to you. And uh, so their baby's just been born. What could they expect from a first visit with a pediatrician? What does that look like? Um, but, well, so the first visit depends on how they, maybe how the baby was born. We have a couple of different groups of families that come to us. Um, the first would be more conventional. They were born in a hospital setting and they're, um, the baby's delivered. And then within two to three days, they're getting discharged home. And we'll usually see a, either a breastfeeding or a formula feeding baby within the first week earlier if the baby's having jaundice or any type of feeding or weight gain um, issues. So that would be more conventional. And then we have, uh, I would say, almost an enormous amount of babies being born at either home births or at a birthing center through a, um, a lay or a nurse midwife. And that can look differently. Um, a lot of them provide phenomenal care through six weeks or even eight weeks of the baby's life. And to not create redundancy and overflow or really burdensome care as far as the parents having to go to too many places, we will default to the um, midwife's care and just say, please reach out to us if you have any concerns. But if you feel comfortable and the midwife feels comfortable, we'll see the baby at six or eight weeks and make wow. that the first visit to the office. So you mentioned that a large number of your patients were born at home. I'm sure you don't have the numbers right in front of you, but do you have a ballpark for what percentage that would look like? To clarify that, I would say the either at home or in a birthing center. So sure. a non, yeah, so a non-traditional hospital birth for us and are just saying our office, I would probably say 40 to 50%. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, the number is increasing each year. I see more and more parents, first uh, moms who are going to be first-time moms and dads. Um, this is not even necessarily a multi-parist, you know, moms with several children, um, but sometimes even first-time parents choosing to go this route. That's amazing. And then, yeah, and then the other, the I think another positive thing is that the um, the number of, or the access to midwife services seems to be increasing. And that's all over Maine, which is, I think is wonderful. It's, I think it really gives families a, a really, really nice other option. 
Absolutely. Well, I can say I'm a bit partial because three of our children were born at home and the other did have a midwife at the hospitals. Okay. So you talk positively about all kinds of different complementary services that can be of help to parents. And I remember you recently speaking about how you would love to be able to share with parents that there are lots of resources available to them, like physical therapists and osteopathic doctors, uh, lactation consultants would be applicable here with new families. What benefits do you see in offering or encouraging parents to use the resources that are available to them, such as in these professionals and others? I think the services are important. The first, one of the ones you mentioned, and I think probably the two most important. So if it was a, if the child was a non-traditional or or maybe I shouldn't use the term traditional, but it was a, if it was a non-hospital birth, probably the midwife and then the lactation consultant come in as number one and two for importance for the parents to have access to and just helping them having a nice start with the baby. I think you have to get um, you, you have to be a little bit more um, diligent like as far as um, other people becoming involved too quickly because often the parents can already be overwhelmed, uh, sleep deprived, and have so much going on in the home with a new child. Um, so introducing other things like so osteopathic or having manipulative services done I I think is wonderful and there's a place for it. I think just as far as, but some of those, you have a parent zigzagging down to the Portland area multiple times a week for that service. So I think having all of them as support services is incredibly important, but hoping that they also have the guidance of somebody to say, okay, well, I, I think this is good or maybe not at this time for having that just so that the parent isn't becoming so overwhelmed by so many different voices. Absolutely. And it sounds like having a supportive, holistic-minded pediatrician would be a great hub for those where if you felt, for example, that a baby had a difficult birth, then they might benefit from some, you know, a manipulation type treatment, but otherwise it might not be necessary at that time. And you can give some guidance to parents on how to go about that process. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we try to do because there can be so many voices from so many places and it's a lot to take in for a, you know, for a new family. So I'm curious what things that you think are especially important for a baby's health in the first few months and considerations that parents may, you know, want to have as they start to raise their children in a healthy way. The first couple of months is hard on uh, parents with their first baby, or even if you have two other children and you've done it already, it's still a lot. It might be the second or third child, and it's it's still a lot. For the mom and dad, their own core mental health and keeping up with their own, whether it was physical fitness or their own routine or just themselves watching movies, being silly, laughing, getting back out of the house, um, getting back to who they were even before the baby came because the child can be you know, really causing them to tune in all of their maternal and paternal instincts so much that can 
be overwhelming and distressing for the parent. So really just trying to get the parents in a space so that they can bond with and connect with the child. And so a lot of, I think, what we wind up doing here is essentially giving suggestions that um, hopefully get them into that equilibrium rather than additively throwing more things to them. And so to segue that to keeping the child healthy in the first couple of months, and you had mentioned environmental toxins or stimuli or other safety issues with the child, um, it can be overwhelming to a new parent. And so I think what we, we, I, we pretty much take an approach that at each milestone or each two month or four month or six month visit, we go over new things um, either developmentally or environmentally that could affect the child for that particular age. And it could be so many things. I could just go on and on about it, but I think each, so if I have maybe a, a six or eight month old that's starting to pull up on a coffee table, we'll talk about what they can get into their mouth, moving hot liquids and objects away from their reach. We'll start to talk about what kind of things they can grab for and get into their mouth. With feeding, we'll talk about um, really starting with whole foods. You, a lot of families still have the impression that it has to come out of a bottle or a can. And we seek to really undo that, that you can just take a sweet potato that you're going to eat and mash it up. And that can be one of the first foods. So a lot of it, I think a lot of it for the first couple of months is hopefully for us uncomplicating the process for the family and hopefully providing a lot of reassurance so that they can get into what they feel like is a good equilibrium. That just sounds amazing. I hear you talking about starting with a foundation of helping the parents themselves to be in a good space so that then the parenting part and raising the baby and the, kind of the health aspects of that almost come naturally as an outflow of taking care of themselves. And then that could then follow into things like safety issues around the house or food, introducing food. It just comes naturally because of the preparations that were made and then just taking things simply in one step at a time as they grow through those phases. That sounds, that sounds a lot simpler than what many of us make it to be for sure. It can be and is often made into a very complicated process. And I, and I, you know, I don't think it has to necessarily be that way. And then if you have a child or a baby that's born, um, you know, maybe it was a complicated birth, then it can even be more. But it's really adapted to that particular family and what they need. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So one of the big topics that comes up when we you know, when parents are talking amongst each other, preparing for new children and deciding how to approach vaccination. Vaccination is very important to a lot of people, one way or the other, however they feel about it. It's, uh, it's a conversation that can, people can be very opinionated about it because they're really concerned for their children. A lot of the listeners here that are listening today are concerned about safety. And I've heard from parents that some might be interested in having a delayed schedule or some of them may want to separate the multiple vaccinations as much as possible and kind of take them one at a time. Some parents choose not to do them at all. 
And so there are a lot of decisions around vaccination to be made. How do you help parents to be informed so that they can feel good about their decision wherever that lies? It's a really good and it's a complicated topic. It's a polarized topic, unfortunately, sure. right now as well. Um, we are, our approach is to be as non-judgmental and open-minded about it as possible. Like the way, at least now, in, in this stage of uh, doing pediatrics, for me, uh, I feel like a new parent has enough on their plate already. So to have one more extreme pressure, um, we try not to put that on them. I would say we have about a third, a third, a third that we see in the office. One third who take a typical, uh, do all the regular vaccinations at the regular schedule. One third who do um, partial vaccinations on an altered schedule. And then one third who do not vaccinate. And we treat everybody the same. You know, a child or a parent or a family is the same child, whether they vaccinate or not. They need support they need care, they need somebody to just throw things to and say, what would you do? Or are we doing the right thing? And essentially to get guidance and reassurance. And that shouldn't, you know, whether they vaccinate or not, that shouldn't change that. And parents will have questions, some parents and some families will have questions about specific vaccines, what things might cause uh, more negative outcomes if they were to get a disease like pneumococcus or haemophilus influenza. So I'll try and steer them towards what I think are illnesses that could cause more mortality if they were to get it. And I think then we always hope that families might come around as they see that we're not being judgmental and really pushing it. We do find that there are families that will come six months or a year later and decide there, there are some of them, if not all of them, that they want. That sounds like That's... such a kind way to approach it. You know, I hear so many stories of parents who are unfortunately under a lot of pressure from their children's doctors to make a decision one way or the other. And from personal experience, I can say that, you know, working with you, it has been a much different experience, you know, and those are hard decisions to make. And I imagine that a number of people come to you and they don't know where they stand on individual vaccinations as well as vaccination as a whole. And so to have someone sit there and listen to their concerns, you know, about which diseases might be more significant to be aware of and things like that, that's a, a refreshing perspective to hear. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, for non-vaccinated children, I would say the vast, you know, and I would put vast in capital letters, they, they do well. So I think some of the fear and the horror stories don't necessarily materialize. But I think with that, as long as the family knows during specific ages that they might be more uh, vulnerable, um, to certain things, so like the first year of life or certain times, and just have more support. But at, at that same time, I would say the vast majority do extremely well. And just knowing, knowing how to handle a fever or a febrile illness. Um, but with that, the, the body's immune system does really well. And I, I try not to 
I have to bite my tongue about becoming political, but fear, a cultural fear can play a big part in both, in two ways in the immunization process. I think new parents, you have this beautiful new child that you, you don't want to do anything to. It's perfect. It's come out and you want to keep it that way. And so there's some fear going into, I don't want to give it or introduce something that might potentially alter this negatively. And then the flip side in conventional medicine is if you don't do this, something is going to happen. So they're, they're really fear coming at each other from opposite ends of the spectrum. And it's finding a, mid, a middle ground in between that. And I, I think that's what, we're, that's what we try to do here, at least. It can be complicated. Yes, complicated. But it is, it's good to, to be able to set aside those fears of the extreme situations and to as best we can observe it from more of a neutral perspective and understand that especially parents, regardless of where they fall on that spectrum of decision-making or which group they kind of land in, that their their interest is in taking care of their child and, and uh, in taking the best care of their child that they know how to do. And I think that's wonderful to be able to have a pediatrician who recognizes that. Yeah, I agree. And I, I agree with what you just said, too. I think it's love. I think the parents, you know, either way, whether they're vaccinating or saying, I don't want to do this right now, can you please be patient with me? Both are completely coming from a point of love for the child and wanted, you know, wanting to absolutely do the best thing for them. And, and that's why I think respecting, you know, having that respect is, is so important and having zero judgment. Mm-hmm. That's great. Another big topic, the second one that I would like to talk about today is around circumcision. I'm not sure, you know, how many people come to you before their baby is born versus after their baby is born. So maybe that decision has already been made for a lot of your patients. But I do know that over different generations, we see that the numbers shift, they go up, they go down. Uh, you know, as far as how many boys are circumcised around our country. And there are also a lot of very polarized opinions on whether it's good or bad, or maybe for select circumstances. So there, you know, there's going to be, as they say, you can find a study to prove any opinion. So there's evidence on pros and cons for both decisions. But this is important to a lot of people. And they, you know, a lot of parents have to try to, you know, make a careful decision about what they believe is right for them. So would you offer some of your insight into maybe what are some pros and cons that parents have to weigh? And what guidance you would offer if they, if they ask you about this prior to birth? I agree with you that you can find studies and pros and cons for both of them. And I don't know that it's changed much over the last 20 years. Uh, I think if, um, well, so, so to go backwards, so say you're going to be a new parent and whether to circumcise, if you're going to have a baby boy, it can be 
affected by the route that the child will be born. If it's going to be through a hospital, you've got the decision has to be fast because ultimately it, sh it should happen while they're in the newborn nursery. The cost is different when it's done in the first week of life. Um, so the decision making process has to have been done uh, during the pregnancy. And I think the majority of the decision-making process during the pregnancy is going to be based on uh, their own experience, maybe whether the father is uh, circumcised or not, and then parental preference. If you go the home birth or birth center route, it's a little bit more interesting because you're not having the um, procedure of circumcision being offered because it's not a hospital delivery. And so that gives a little bit more time. And so then you have time to sort of think about it. Uh, the route will be different because then you're going through a urology office potentially. So there's setting up a visit for that. I think maybe just a little bit more time to think through it. Whether, whether or not to do the circumcision, I, I think it still comes down to parental preference. There are pros and cons for both. And just really briefly, the, you know, the, the pros for circumcision are just um, aesthetics, cleaning, a lower risk of urinary tract infections, probably just in the first year of life. And then getting into later life, it reduces the risk of sexually transmitted infections just because there's a little bit less redundant skin there. And then with that same thing, it reduces the likelihood of cancers of that particular part of the foreskin. So those are the pros. And then the cons, it's, it's a surgical procedure. There's the possibility that something can go wrong. You can have adhesions that has to be done again. Um, either too much or too little skin is taken off. The, um, and so there's, there's multiple other cons against it. So I, I think ultimately it comes down to parental preference and what type of guidance they're being, you know, they're being given in, in the time before they make the decision. So, and sure. I don't put, for personally, I don't push parents either way. I try and support their decision or the direction that they're going in. And I, I really, I don't agree with pushing them in one specific, that, you know, that this is specifically correct. The natural state to be uncircumcised, I, <clears throat> I very much try and support and go through parents with a go through the care um, with the parents as much as possible. Yeah. yeah. And I think the more support that parents have, the easier it would be to, for example, go the more natural way, because if parents are given instruction on proper cleaning or, you know, later on, young men are given information on how to have safe, safe sex practices and things like that, then having the circumcision done isn't as necessary. But there again, you know, pros and cons both ways. And ultimately, as long as the parents are given information on how to properly care for the baby either way, then that's the important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Neither state, I don't think, should be treated preferentially. It's just mm -hmm. mostly supporting the... And I, I have to say, I actually, ironically, with that, I wind up getting questions about complications on both. 
So mm-hmm. post circumcision, um, it's, you know, was there supposed to be that much skin or why is the skin reattaching? Um, so that comes up often. And then without circumcision, that's not a lot, but the biggest one tends to be that the foreskin can close up a little bit too much. They call this phimosis in some boys. And then it just, you know, we need to go through ways to uh, be able to um, encourage the opening uh, to open back up a little bit more. So mm-hmm. I, I think questions and complications can come from both of them. I'm sure. Let's take a little sidestep to another concern that parents have with new babies. And that is, or I should say, maybe not brand new babies, but a few months down the road. What about introducing food? Uh, You know, today we have a lot of concerns about developing early food sensitivities and allergies potentially down the road. Is there a way to minimize risk for that by how we introduce food? I know you started with talking about like whole foods. Could you tell like more about that process? I tend to be less um, uh, tentative about introducing new foods. I I think when I first started practicing and and I think even the AAP um, or the, not I think the AAP um, has definitely changed um, their focus on introducing new foods. And a lot of it has changed from, uh, we used to sort of, it was overburdening, I think, for the parents because there were so many do nots Mm. in the first year of life. A lot of the studies that initially had showed things like um, peanut allergies, tree nut allergies, um, egg allergies, some of the big ones. And we used to suggest uh, to parents holding off on those um, now have completely flip-flopped and the studies and the data show that it's okay and it's safe to introduce these things a lot earlier than we used to and that the, the babies and their immune systems actually do fairly well with it. So my, my approach, and it's just me, but I tend to be very um, I take a, um, I probably would call it a more hands-off approach. I, I like to give guidance and support, really allowing parents to start whole foods, you know, generally after four to six months of age and as long as the baby is ready for it. And I think my, I take a support role in if they have questions, if something comes up, if it's looking like it could be a sensitivity or an allergy, getting more involved, but otherwise just, simple, uncomplicated whole foods, staying away from processed, ideally. Um, I don't remember the last time I would have ever suggested a Gerber type product or a processed product. So really, if the parents and the family are okay with it, everything should be a whole food, you know, going into them. And so that allows the parent, whether you're doing one new food every couple of days or a few new foods a day, I think it makes it a lot easier to figure out if they're having some type of reaction. And not. And the one other thing I would say with introducing new foods is um, I, I try not, in not being overly cautious is that um, giving the families sort of in the, the baby-led feeding approach the okay that this can actually be a really positive, fun part of the 
the you know the journey and I, I i don't like to take an overly cautious approach because i think it's in a breastfed baby it's a great way for the father to become involved now in the feeding and that creates another connection between the dad and a new bond so i think it can be a really fun process and i try and focus on you know a little bit more on that that's great i love that especially that point about the dads being involved in that way and making it a fun experience uh, you know, it brings back memories of what that was like for me and experimenting with the new foods, seeing their reactions and everybody's giggling and that's fun. Uh, do you have any recommendations on how to know if a baby is ready to try a food like in the first place? Oh, yeah. Well, they're, um, I, I mean, usually I'll say when they're grabbing it off of your spoon or plate, the tongue protruding, um, them really focusing on what you're the, the parents are doing, usually they'll really be eyeing the parents' eating behavior. It's usually somewhere between three and five months of age that they're showing this interest. So that's, I think that's just following, but this is following the baby's cues. So similar to a breastfeeding cue that the child's ready to feed, they are watching everybody eat. And, and ideally, they're probably in one of the parents or family members arms and so if they're close enough so if you take a typical four or five month old if um if dad is having a soft avocado and um the child is really intently watching you know putting a tiny pit, bit of it on their pinky and then starting to feed and mm. if the child is gulping it right down or even grabbing the whole parent's hand and guiding it into their mouth then they're they're ready you know they're ready yeah yeah <laughs> that's <laughs> and great it's cute it's adorable you know it's it's nice to watch and I think it can be incredibly positive so and the only other thing I would say just is um you know I try not to be overly cautious but I'll ask the family is there a history so is there a shellfish allergy history Do, does anybody else at home have an EpiPen for peanuts or tree nuts and then we then we know if there's something that we have to be more cautious about introducing so for peanut allergy I might say to the parent have some of the peanut butter yourself give the child a kiss on the cheek try that for a few days if you're not seeing a significant cutaneous reaction you're probably okay to go ahead and put a little bit on your pinky and actually feed them so that's a great tip I appreciate yeah. that I know that whole foods is really the priority and that we're getting our nutrition from good quality sources of food, but sometimes challenges do come up where maybe a child isn't sleeping very well at night. And I know we're kind of like bumping this up into maybe like toddlers possibly, but other concerns can come up where a parent might be wondering, would it be appropriate to supplement with vitamins or other supplements and I know that in the past, uh, you know, we've had my personal family has had concerns and you've been able to recommend certain supplements to help us with, with our concerns, which I always appreciated going to the supplements first rather than maybe medications as a first choice. Um, are there any favorite vitamins or supplements that you will often recommend for common concerns for young children? 
Um, well, that I well, there's a there's a whole myriad of those. Did, were there any ones in specific that because that well, vitamin D would be the first one just for breastfeeding, especially in the winter time. But I, I, I think you're you might be yeah, talking like about for immune that, support or oh, okay. uh, you know, young children who maybe are um, a little more anxious or having difficulty sleeping, things like that. And this is where having a, being able to sit down and hopefully have a good conversation with the family unit, because first you're trying to tease out if there's anything obvious, you know, um, a dad or a mom that's having postpartum depression or some other obvious stressor, you ideally don't want to treat the baby or the toddler if it's something else in the environment and, and being open to that. You're talking about going to the source first and figuring out what's the causing the situation in the first place. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. so so a classic example could be maybe unfortunately a couple that's just recently split up and that's creating stress for both parents and they have some support, but maybe one or both of them isn't sleeping well. Uh, infants and toddlers are great at nonverbal body reading, you know, be reading the body language of their parents and picking up on those cues. And so if they're picking up on stressors of the parent, they might be displaying some maladaptive behaviors um, and sleep can be a big one. So I think first checking the unit, whatever, what's everybody doing, what's going on. And then if everything with that seems to be okay, you know, I'm then talking about things like um, herbal supplements, like chamomile tea has been used for ages. Uh, valerian root is very, very safe to use for sleeping or for anxiety. Um, you get a couple of others like L-theanine um, for anxiety or for sleep. Melatonin is probably overused, but I think has a really good place for specific short-term use for a healthy infant or toddler. And then depending on, um, I think for older kids, it can be used depending on underlying situations. And then that can also get into just food supplements themselves. So, but I think right. it, it's a case by case basis. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, in this context, talking on the podcast, it would be inappropriate to make blanket statements and, and say that we're telling everyone they should take vitamin D, you know, it has to be based on their scenario. Like you're saying, we have to know yeah. what the, what is the source of this concern here and how can we resolve it in the most natural way? Uh, but I appreciate your mention of those, uh, some of your more favorite supplements and uh, vitamins there. So we've covered a lot of information here and a lot of uh, big topics. Do you have any last encouragement or guidance that you would like to leave with our listeners as they're either preparing to have a baby or continuing to raise their children? It can be a complicated period um, around birth in the first year. And I think uncomplicating it as quickly as possible. Um, and I think, you know, the word love is not, not used enough, but I think using that as the primary motivator of a lot of the things. Um, so using love and how much time you should spend with the child um, in some of the decision-making that you're having with the, the new baby of the child with your own relationship I think that could be so so important and I think with a lot of families now too I see um, 
either work or material objects wind up replacing the most free thing that you have, which is love and your time and your attention for them. And um, I think that would be the, you know, is to, you'll always be able to work a lot later down the road if that's what you want or need to do. Um, and there's lots of material objects and other things that can have happen as distractions later in life. But I would say for the first year or two, especially, and, and ongoing, actually, this would be right up to your teenage and young adult child is just, um, is just love. It's the most free thing that we can give it to our children and, and it's probably the most helpful thing, um, you know, for them in their lives. That is what a beautiful way to end this conversation on the topic of just loving and caring for our children with our attention and showing them, you know, demonstrating our love to them. I appreciate that. I appreciate all of the time that you've spent in this conversation, all these thoughts that you've gifted us with. Uh, I know that recently you mentioned a possibility of creating a podcast yourself. Is there any chance that that may happen in the near future? Yeah, I'm still, I, I, I have these thoughts and then I, you know, I, I, it's, I think it's a definite possibility just in us talking um, you start to realize how you could you could literally do 45 minutes times 100 and pick out topics. You know, there's so, so many in parenting. And I love the idea of just putting it all out there in, in a, a loving, supportive way. There it is. It's free. We're putting this out there to help. There's nothing attached to it. There's no strings attached. We're just basically trying to put our support out there for other people because it's hard parenting is hard and I think the more good positive and I'll use the word again loving support you can get it's so incredibly helpful I definitely will keep you updated I just yes to, please yeah. do and I'll make sure that the listeners are able to listen to your podcast when you begin it as well thank you so much for being here today I really appreciate it yeah, thank you. And Naomi, thank you for what you're, well, thank you for having me, but thank you for what you're doing, because I think by trying to put information that's helpful out there for families and non-conventional and giving families other sources and ideas, I think it's absolutely wonderful. It's difficult. And so I, I really, I think it's amazing what you do. I appreciate that. Thank you. And to everyone who is listening, thank you for being here. If you have any other questions uh, that you would like to perhaps pass on to Dr. Adler, uh, then you can reach out either to myself at laureltreewellness at gmail.com. Or if you would like to look into Aardvark Pediatrics or learn from Dr. Adler, and maybe there will be an announcement of a new podcast, we'll see. Uh, your website, is that aardvarkpediatrics.com? Yes, that it. Yeah. And then through that, our email and phone number that they can text through uh, okay. is all on the website. Great. Thank you so much, everyone. And have a wonderful week. The Family Herbalism Podcast is created for educational purposes only. You have the right and responsibility to make all health-related decisions for your own life. If you experience a medical emergency, please contact appropriate medical providers. 
To receive herbalist support, please visit www.laureltreewellnessllc.com. If you enjoy this podcast and find it helpful, please share it with your friends and family and leave a review. Thank you for listening.